So transitory and persistent have been a debate on inflation going back some time. And I was in the transitory camp, um, but it turns out that I could have entitled this uh, presentation, two things can be true at the same time, because we, what we found is inflation has been both transitory and persistent. And we'll talk a little bit about why, but we've had a big week for uh, economic news. Yesterday, we had the New York Fed release its survey of consumer inflation expectations, where for the next year, they think it's going to be down around 4.1%, um, and for the three years, down to three, and for the five years, down to 2.7, well, well above the Fed's 2% target. Uh, today, we have the start of the Fed meeting, and CPI was announced this morning. Um, uh, headline ease down to uh, 4%, down from 9.1% last June and 4.9% from last month. The core uh, down to 5.3 from 5.5 last month. Um, so I think we're in a, in a really interesting period. Uh, everyone's wanting to see is the Fed going to hike, pause, skip, or, uh, or uh, cut. Uh, if you recall, just even a couple months ago, there was calls for three or four uh, rate cuts this year. And as you'll see, those uh, uh, items have been reversed. So let's jump into it and hopefully this will progress the way it's supposed to. Um, so CPI was out today, as I mentioned, the numbers came down quite a bit, but inside uh, CPI, there are three areas that are problematic. Um, one is housing, still stubbornly high, uh, two is food, and three is used vehicles. On the positive side, on the headline, uh, Energy was down three and a half percent month over month and uh, was a big part of why the core has come down as much as it is. I do worry that um, that's going to get worse in the second half of the year, uh, uh, but that's something to keep an eye on. I would also just say we've had other numbers out. The, uh, Australia just raised their rates. Um, you can expect rate increases likely from the ECB and from the UK as uh, inflation seems to be a little stubborn there. But in the US, one of the problems is our employment levels. We're two and a half percent above the pre-pandemic employment levels in the, in the country. Um, and we need to get in the FRET's projections and also in the CBO's projections, get inflation to move back up above 4%. We've been uh, you know, really low around the mid threes, um, but that's a lot of people that would be coming out of the labor force if that happens. And that'll put some strains on the system. So that's something we really have to keep an eye on. And one of the problems of why we have this persistent and transitory inflation is that certain areas you're seeing uh, stronger wage growth. So uh, with the unions renegotiating contracts that could be multi-year, 5, 10, 15 percent uh, uh, raises over those times, uh, pretty, pretty healthy increases, that has to flow into the system still. Um, so in some cases, you're going to have higher wages with such a tight labor market, although there are some signs of that starting to ease. But we really have a tale of two economies. And what you can see here is the purchasing manager indices. And you can see the blue line is manufacturing, which shows we're in a contractionary stage below 50%. Services, uh, non-manufacturing is at uh, slightly above 50, so it's still expansionary, but you don't like the trends for either one. What that flows through potentially is lower earnings for corporations, the less inability, less ability to pass on higher higher prices, 
And then what do they do with the costs that they have that are uh, their input costs that are higher? So potentially leading to margin squeezes for a number of companies. So when we keep looking ahead though, this is where the transitory and persistent becomes more obvious. So the blue line here is CPI for goods. The orange line is for services. And you can see the goods spiking up from the first quarter of 21 uh, forward into 22, and then sharply coming down as supply chains ease and some of the pressures started to come off the system. And you started to see the demand for those goods has started to be met and we started to return to work. So the work from home thing started to change, but the services element continued to rise and is steady. So you get the transitory on the good side, more persistent on the services side. And that's part of the challenge that makes everyone right and wrong at the same time. This is a tougher little chart to see, but this is from the New York Fed and they break down three components of uh, the PCE. One is um, uh, goods inflation in the upper left-hand corner. And as you can see, that's uh, moved up and come down pretty aggressively, but less so on the upper right-hand corner, you see housing inflation. Uh, and you see that's starting to trend down from uh, April to March, um, uh, from March to April, I'm sorry, but you are seeing it uh, trending down, but it's still quite elevated. Um, and then you add to that, that the services sector still remains elevated. And you can see why the pressures on the system are uh, still high. One of the things that's driving this is consumer net worth is still strong and the amount of stimulus that was put into the system is actually quite high and still working through, even though we've had a lot of tight, tightening going on from the Fed and other central banks. So let's move ahead. Where do we go from here? So as I said, a couple of weeks ago, even a couple of months ago, they were calling for three or four rate cuts this year. Now you can see what the, uh, from the futures market, as of yesterday, they had a 78%, a 79% probability that the Fed stays with a slight 20% probability that they hike. The rationale for hiking is actually quite interesting. Even though it looks like inflation's coming down pretty aggressively, they cut it in half on the headline level. Um, some of the persistent inflation is pushing people to say, we need, there's more work to be done. And that would justify the hike uh, of even a quarter point. I think you can go either way on this one. I don't think the quarter point really matters. I think it's really matters what happens over time and will depend on is the economy moving towards a recession or are we in this kind of a, a, a slow recession or deep recession is really gonna be the call on that. But when you look forward and we move a month forward uh, to the July meeting, you start to see <clears throat> more pressure for rate increases coming. And you can see that, uh, Maintaining where we are is only 32%, 55% are proposing a rate hike and 12% proposing moving above 5.5% into the 575 range. So I wanted to see what it looked like at year end. And this is what the betting market is saying for the December meeting. What you're starting to see come into play is rate cuts as well as rate hikes. So now as we move out into the end of the year, you see a very decidedly mixed view, almost equal views of rate hikes versus rate cuts versus maintain. And I think this is really a reflection of the uncertainty that exists in the economy and the, uh, the lack of clarity on where things are going. Our view, and it's been for some time, is that the market has been wrong about rate cuts, that the Fed has been going to do what they said they were going to do, be data dependent, look to see what was happening. We thought uh, in recent months that they were getting closer to 
uh, peak rates, which is part of the reason they've seen the economy, particularly the stock market, move into uh, bull market territory again, is once you got the feeling that the Fed was done raising rates, uh, margin, uh, the multiples would stop contracting and in some cases could start expanding again. And that's what we've seen. Our view is, is going to be that we're going to be in this kind of uh, range bound uh, on rates unless there's a major blow up in the system. People are looking to the commercial real estate and other areas for that. But I think that's where, we, where we're sitting today. So where do we go from here? Um, I think you have to keep in mind one element that the market is underestimated, I think, for some time. And the San Francisco Fed last November came out with what they call the proxy funds rate. And what they do with that is they incorporate other elements that the rate tightening that the Fed does by raising that just the fund, Fed's rate triggers. So they looked at mortgage rates and the mortgage rates have almost doubled over the last 12 months. They look at the availability of credit, which we know is coming in slowly because of the banking crisis problems. And they look at the overall level of interest rates as well. And if you look at their proxy rate, what they're saying is that rates have been as high as 6% for some time. And that's really the effective rate on the system today. So the conditions are much tighter than we think because they continue to reduce their balance sheet to the tune of about $95 billion a month which doesn't seem like that much on a $30 trillion economy or $28 trillion economy where we are today. But when you think that as recently as a year ago, we were adding $125 billion into the system every month through quantitative easing, what we had is a reversal or a tightening of monetary conditions by a quarter trillion dollars a month. Um, and that gets significant when you think about that as, as going forward. So we think the market's underestimated this. We think conditions are, have been tighter than we think, and that the amount of stimulus that was put in the system the last several years is the reason the economy has been coming through the tightening conditions that exist and why we've been able to manage as well as we have. Doesn't mean we can do this on a, on a going forward basis. It really depends on how fast some of the stimulus that's been put in actually becomes productive. And as we talked about, there are some concerns about that uh, as we move forward. So I think the way you need to think about the economy today is we've been in a polycrisis environment, meaning we've had a once in a hundred year pandemic. We had a war for the first time in Europe in 70 years. You've had a reorientation of global supply chains due to the pandemic, but also due to the geopolitical situation when we have a fragmenting of the global economy. You've had a lot of movement of uh, migration and immigration going on that has created social problems for a lot of economies. And the combination of all these forces has created economic distortions that make it a different environment than we're looking at in the past. So to make the same assumptions we made in the past is what's, I think, tripping up a lot of investors in this environment. So as Mark, we talked about earlier, everyone was expecting China to reopen and that reopening was gonna help the global economy. Yet because of their problems, they took it to a domestic issue and are focusing more on supporting their quality of growth, supporting social stability and supporting domestic consumption and not being the savior for the global economy that they were in 08. That has big implications on the global system. Similarly, the uh, IRA Act and other policies that have been put in place by the US are creating changes in how the industrial base works that are creating distortions that go on in the system. Another big source of economic distortions is climate change 
and the response to climate change and how the policies being put in place are creating these short-term uh, gaps that we have either in the supply of energy or in the cost of delivering the supply of energy or in how we're set up to get the new sources of energy to the markets that they need to get to. So all these factors are at play here. And then you add to it, AI work from home and productivity is changing the labor and consumption dynamics that we're seeing because you have energy problems in some areas, you have power problems, you have people not willing to work. Um, and now you have AI creating a, a fear of, will the jobs be around? Another big force that is not something we've really had to deal with at any time in the recent past. And then you have to think about the quantitative tightening and, and the proxy uh, tightening conditions when you think about your investment views. And what's fascinating to me is the market has been wrong about what the Fed's doing and other central banks have been doing. And this Fed has been the most communicative of any. And I would say the ECB has never been more communicative as they've been under Lagarde and obviously under Draghi, they've been highly communicative. But They've told the market what they're doing and the market's gotten it wrong. They've gotten it wrong on rate cuts. The banks you saw got it wrong with um, Silicon Valley and others that they weren't listening what the Fed was saying and the Fed was pretty clear on what they were doing. I think the other issue that we have to keep in mind is how much can the Fed move to tighten is somewhat, they're somewhat hamstrung because of the lack of room to maneuver by the amount of fiscal stimulus that's been put into the system. And as we're seeing in the US and other places, greater resistance to the uh, nonstop spending uh, on the fiscal side because we're running into uh, real debt issues and uh, debt cost issues crowding out other spending. So I think Powell's gonna come out today and say that they're gonna be flexible and patient. They're gonna pause here because they think uh, that uh, the, the tightening is working that they put through, but they are concerned about the, the system uh, continuing to move on the path that we're on. The numbers are too volatile that they're going to want to see uh, that the system is absorbing things in a proper way. And in the back of their mind, they are worried about creating more crises because the amount of debt servicing costs that are going to be pushed through the system in the coming years are going to be quite high. And you think about countries not in the U.S. like Canada and some of the European countries where mortgage rates are reset on a five-year basis or less you have a big uh, cost increase coming through to the system. So we have to adjust to higher costs of living. And that means flowing through to how you think about your cap rates for investing and, and the like. So higher cost of living, the reindustrialization is gonna shift uh, uh, production away from areas that have been the strongest areas in the past, moving to new areas. And it's gonna create new opportunities and new winners and new losers. Um, and I think the US is particularly well positioned right now for it if we don't completely screw it up with the uh, in the next 12 months with either the debt ceiling uh, or uh, other policy issues. So Mark, I'll stop there and open it up and uh, get other people's views. Well, the first bullet, uh, it, it was September, 2019. Stephen Burke, I always tell the story, was surrounded by seven newspapers. And we were talking about whether climate change was deflationary or inflationary. and and I was like, and that combined with Rich Sobel saying, maybe you want to let Stephen kick off the event instead of you sometime. So we made an audible and you, that, that was, that was the, the yeah. point you made, but it's, they're, they're distortions, right? They're summer yeah. short term, summer longer term, and they're playing out in, in the middle of other wins 
that are about. Yeah, and we forget that the, the balance sheets of the three largest central banks grew from, in the US it was 900 billion to 9 trillion in a 15 year, in a 12 year period. You had you know, the ECB go, uh, had more than double theirs in the Bank of Japan as well. So we've thrown all this money into the system, but now we've started to pull it out very quickly. And the change in M2 is something that's creating distortions as well. So you really see the number of things that are so unusual, and yet we kind of act like things are slightly different when they're really very, very different than they've been at any time in our careers. Yeah. So questions, comments? Uh, for Mr. Burke, incredible presentation, highly concentrated, very valuable. Um, in the ideal, how would you like to see the shape of the yield curve? Uh, maybe it's a simple question, but uh, no, I think that I think the um, the Fed has a problem. They need to. They're going to be where they're going to be. I think for a while. Um, I think they. We need to get debt down, and we need to get growth up to get the back end of the yield curve to uh, to get the yield curve to move to a more normal uh, state. Um, but they needed to get the short end up. We needed to. The Fed and other central banks needed room because expansions don't go on forever. And we did have a recession with the pandemic and, and all, but that was very short-lived and not really a, a full recession. So we didn't work through all the things you would normally work through in a recession. The excesses weren't choked out. So I think we're going through that purging process still. So I think we're gonna be in this kind of mode for some period of time where we're gonna be uh, higher short rates than on the long end. And it's gonna take us to get our financial houses in order and get growth back on track and get debt into, under control. I think that's a big problem. You're seeing uh, high yield uh, uh, defaults in the US are starting to creep up again. You're starting to see some of the cracks coming through the system. So I think the overly indebted system is gonna have to work through the yield curve for some time. I, I don't think there's an easy answer on it. That's the problem. And I don't think, just to pile on, I don't think the political wherewithal is there to do the right things that need to be done to get us in a better spot to get the yield curve righted. Thank you. You're welcome. Andrew Fish. Uh, Stephen, uh, something I've been giving thought to, you were just talking about high yield and defaults. Um, you know, we've, we're all, we've been around a long time, but something's fundamentally changed in that um, today, you have uh, direct lending as large as the entire high yield market or alternatively the higher loan market. And, uh, and those type of data just isn't available in that space. Um, and uh, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to count that in if you, for, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah, I think, I think if people could really count that in, they'd be more scared. And they uh, are. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't mark. And if there's defaults, there's no reporting mechanism. I'm not saying there's tons and tons, but but it's it's a kissing cousin, certainly of both of those those things. Yeah, I I think that is something that we really haven't paid enough attention to. In part because for the better part of zero interest rates, we were told that modern monetary theory works, and there were a number of believers of that where people got a little numb because zero interest rates cover that sin. 5% interest rates don't. 
And when you have 30 trillion of debt, and like the US has, if they're moving to 30 something trillion of debt very soon, um, and you're looking at uh, you know 3% or 4% moving interest rates on that, it's pretty crippling on a, on a system. Yeah, uh, and, and in fact, um, Stephen, I was on a, I just wanted to see, I was on an Oak Tree Brookfield. I get. I guess they got together on this one. Yep. Uh, looks like Oak Tree's running the credit. Uh, anyway, on a, on a thing yesterday about about their direct lending. And it struck me, uh, first of all, it's all floating rate. And they casually mentioned at one point um, about the uh, possibility of stress on the borrowers of, of rising rates. You know, it was like a sentence. Um, uh, their discussion as to, there was no discussion as to recovery or defaults. They, they, they quoted Howard Marks as saying, you. You, you put out loans to people that will always pay you back or something to that effect. It's like, so I've known Oak Tree for 25 years. Uh, I don't know Brookfield that well, but but two names that I would have say I respect more than, than, than most in, in the space. And it was downright frightening listening to this. I mean, in, in terms of the, the thought and professionality that went into, uh, and we're talking about huge amounts of money here, not that's why I did it. We're not talking about a niche lending strategy. So it, it's out there, and um, uh, I'll leave it at that. But uh, but I think I think it's it's it could be ignored ten years ago. I don't think it can be ignored today. Yeah, Howard Marks is probably one of the few guys who will skate through this well because he'll have his choice, and he's very patient. Um, Ray Dalio was out yesterday on CNBC with a pretty disturbing message on his views on debt as well and thinks there's a big debt problem heading our way. I, I think he's right. I think the issue for the market is, um, again, we'll have a very significant have and have nots both on a, I've said this for the 160 some odd weeks between the, you'll have it on a country level, a company level and on a household level. Inequality is not just gonna be focused on uh, income inequality, but I think company inequality is going to be quite high. And a lot of that is around uh, the strength of the balance sheet and the debt burdens that some companies have and others don't. Um, Adam? Adam? Yeah, my, my question regarding that direct lending, that, but that doesn't really affect the, the depositors in the banking system. And if it does, it would be indirect, right? Yeah, that's correct. But when you think about, just think about it this way, if it's a household, whether if, if it's the balance sheet of a household, whether it's from a bank or from a private company, the debt burden's still the same. The problem is the, um, what, who has, what are the protections and all that go into it as well. So but not being able to factor it in, you can't really tell what the balance sheet is. Um, so I think that's one of the risks to the system. It's not a risk necessary to banks and bank deposits like the uh, uh, Silicon Valley issue was. That's a diff very different, but right. it's just the overall cost of the debt on the system, the ability to pay back the debt just to meet the interest costs, forget about paying down the debt is part of the problem. Great. Thank you, Stephen. Mark, I think- Can I ask how- Quickly, can I quickly ask how worried you are at the moment about sort of where commercial real estate is going to take things in, in the near future? Uh, 
I don't have a really good answer on that one. I, I think it's going to be, uh, I think the, what you'll see is kind of a slow roll because it depends on when leases come due, what it's going to look like. But I, I would say the uh, signs out of San Francisco are getting more disturbing by the day um, in terms of what's going on to that city. Um, so I think we're, I think we're going to have a commercial real estate issue. Again, it'll be very bifurcated between the old real estate families that do all their deals now with cash flow and manageable debt versus the guys who took zero interest rates and thought they would last forever. And I think you'll see the have and have nots there play out. Uh, Paul? Hey guys, uh, Stephen, I wanted to, the information came out today or yesterday about when uh, student loan payments have to restart. Uh, I think it's October is when, uh, and this is 1.6 trillion of student loans that haven't been paid since, I guess, like mid-April 2020, somewhere around there. So we're going on, you know, three plus years. Uh, what do you, are, are you and the Fed kind of starting to look at how this is going to affect the economy? As, have you seen any articles about it? I, I haven't seen anything really positive uh, on the payments themselves, but just how it is going to affect the economy uh, in terms of that debt burden. Well, you were talking about debt, you know, hitting the consumer, uh, you know, all at once that has yep. been turned off for years. Yeah, you, you would hope that people were taking advantage of that to save the money, um, mm. but they likely did not. So, you can assume that it's just going to add to the debt problem and slow down consumer spending for those that portion of the group, um, and will create a, it, the trickle effect of that. Though, is it tends to slow down other areas that we need, like household formation and things like that, and when how fast they can buy homes and all. And all. So, I think it's a real issue. Uh, I think the Fed's handle. I think the government's handling it completely wrong. They, the real to me, the approach should be. Um, waive all the interest payments and just have people pay their principal so that you at least get the principal paid back. And the government didn't need to charge loan shark rates to students to help them and then blame the system for it. So I think you could have more reasonable, you waive the interest rate payments and let them pay their principal back and work it that way and still kind of help them, but not blow up what a, a con loan contract is, but that's, personal view. I think the real issue is it's going to slow down consumer spending and the trickle effect that that will have on the system will be lower earnings for a lot of companies. Duncan? Yeah, I think I brought this up last week. I'm still sort of stuck on this theme of the Fed's 2% inflation target. And then if you look at the breakdown of where the inflation is, it's in the service sector, which are sort of tend to be sort of lower end jobs, which is exactly what you know, the Biden administration and even to some degree, Trump was trying to engineer, you know, they're trying to get the lower, you know, portion of the, uh, the US working population to get paid more. So they're kind of getting what they want. But I just don't know how you reconcile that with a 2% inflation target. And I'm, I wonder if you have thoughts on that, or if you think that, that this will ever come up as a, as a discussion point. And, I do think you know, it'll, just at, pardon. Yeah, sir. I do think it'll come up as a discussion point, but not until they get past 
getting inflation closer to a more reasonable target. So I don't think they would broach it until they're really into the low threes, if they were even going to bring it up then. But when you're double above the target, it's not, it's too soon for them because then it'll look like they're quitting on the fight. And a lot of what um, the Fed's dealing with is um, the reality of the economy and the psychology of the economy. And if you get consumers in a mindset that they're going to be uh, in, in a higher inflation environment that chokes off their willingness to spend, you end up perpetuating the problem you're trying to get out of. And that's one of the dilemmas that the Fed has is they need to keep growth growing at a higher rate. They need to try and get growth at a higher rate than the increase in debt costs. And every, everywhere around the world, that's what they need to try and do. And that's really the fight they have. So I think the number, Duncan, is it's kind of a why are we at that number? Nobody really has a good answer for it other than um, that's kind of the number that they, they used. But is it likely to be moved up? Not quickly. Um, yeah. It changes the, the mindset. It says they lost the fight and they can't afford that mindset to go into the market. Well, I wonder if there's another way to think about it, you know, that people spend their you know, enormous amounts of time trying to translate Fed speak into what their actions will be. And, you know, another way to deal with this is to continue to talk about 2%, but, you know, maybe do this pause. And, you know, I think every theme you've just brought up, you know, the people here in the room have brought up is, you know, there's going to be uh, a slowdown in consumer spending because of the student loans. There's a trickle through of a lot of the actions that have taken place. And, you know, maybe that's the argument that they just sit here at this level that I think you're sort of making without saying why they're doing it. But they just say, OK, we're not going to go to seven or I mean, if they want to get rid of the inflation to go to two percent, all they have to do is go to seven or eight. Boom. People get fired. The inflation goes away. So, you know, you either want to get inflation to two percent or you basically want to pretend like you want to get inflation to two percent, but you're not really doing what it takes to get you to two percent. Well, there's another element, Duncan, is are they worried that if they go to 7% and the economy really slows down, there's enough, they can lower rates, but there's still not enough to get it stimulated again to get the growth back on track. And one of the <coughs> concerns that the Fed has of, of cutting too soon is that they create a 70s style uh, reemergence of inflation. The other one is that they tighten too much and get no growth, and then it's hard to get past the get your growth back on track because how do you stimulate the economy when fiscal policy has shot virtually every bullet that they can um, with the deficit where it is and debt levels where they are. So D Duncan, you had asked separately about London. So I, I assume you've got this program because if you well, wanted- I didn't, I, I, I was, I'm, I'm sort of eyeballing it when I spoke to you. I, I have, um, I have to be, I, I was trying to see what was going on the day after, a couple of days after London, because I have to, I, if I came, I have to be on a plane on Thursday back here. So that was, I was just trying to see if it made sense. And I, I didn't really understand what the second two days of the program were. Well, those are, it's not our event. It's, it's the, uh, it's another conference that we know them well. It's Pre Prestel. Okay. So I can show you that program, but on the, th on the Wednesday evening, <laughs> there's a nice event um which you could see here um you're going to go voting up 
up the get up in Oxford, and then there's a program you can get probably get back to your to your flight. But but you're it's too bad because the, the your kind of discussion about uh, is really going to talk about the survey twelve, which if everybody hasn't done it, I'll throw it in the chat, and it really is about your views on recession and scares and excites that 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 will be an interesting discussion um but okay well over to you walter um yeah thank you just a, a quick uh clarification and then a question um regarding how howard marks i've uh been following him for ever since he presented at business school actually uh with uh steve kaplan when he was just getting started um he sold his business basically to Oakmark. Uh, Oakmark sold to Brookfield. So I always look at insider sales as a good indicator of how much skin in the game uh, one person may have. He's a brilliant guy. I just question whether he's now a rainmaker or not necessarily uh, down in the trenches with regards to due diligence on the credit side. That's just my little five cents. My question, um, we're all focusing on the on balance sheet aspect of the Fed trying to unwind their trade on the balance sheet and also coupled with interest rates or Fed rates, Fed fund rates. But what we're maybe missing, and this is my question, is the enormous amounts of stimulus, both in the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. We now know that the trade towards investments in China is not working out. So we may be seeing some of that repatriation. And we're seeing Taiwan semiconductors coming in big, investing in the US. We're seeing VW coming in big, investing in EV technology. So I'm wondering if because we're entering into this election cycle, if Biden and company are saying, oh, that's nice, Fed, but we have our own agenda. And this is what we're bringing, which is essentially QE. And I'm wondering if we're factoring that in, because when we're saying we're trying to wind down the balance sheet and yet we're bringing in incentivizing, right, spending FDI, direct investing, that's all going to eventually trickle down the economy. And that's going to make, I think, my question, inflation super sticky. So sticky that we may not be able to bring down from four, three and a half down to two. It's going to be extremely painful. And addressing that point in the services side of the economy, that's going to be suicidal. Yeah, I think the uh, it's a it's a great question. I think that one of the dynamics that we're going to have to see is how do how does we've had negative productivity trends for the last several years. So how does productivity play in the reshoring, and uh, and then then what do we do with the people that then don't have jobs because of the reshoring and the productivity improvements? So I think that's the that's part of the wild card. I I think you're right though. The the Fed is part of their problem of bringing inflation down is countering the stimulus that. The fiscal stimulus is created for the system, which has been somewhat inflationary uh, on the front end. So I, I think you're right on that, that there is a big factor. Um, I think the Fed has actually got a lot of blame for the inflation that came through. That actually was the fiscal policymakers' fault um, in the particularly the last year of it. Um, while some of it highly targeted and very thoughtful, um, when you look at that, we put over 54% of uh, GDP in between monetary and fiscal stimulus for a problem that was a couple trillion dollar problem uh, is why the system is so inflated right now and still, still so 
stimulated. So I think the Fed is actually working against the fiscal stimulus um, and getting blamed for the inflation that was created by the policymakers, not them. Um, they did their own thing. They stayed too long earlier, but where they are right now, I, I've been a fan of what Powell's done. Um, but I think that that issue is a big issue. And uh, if they had their way, they would be doing more spending um, on the fiscal side. So the fact that we had a, a brief round of sanity, um, which didn't really cut the, the spending, but did slow it down is a, I think is a positive, but not enough. So I think you're right, Walter. It's, a, it's something that people really have to factor in. So you have that on one side, but the reduction of the balance sheet is a big deal. Um, when, you, when the M2 is reversed so much, I think it's had the one of the greatest single reversals we've had in history. Um, and it was pretty dynamic, pretty, pretty dramatic change. And that says that's starting to be felt through the system too. So again, it's part of the distortions that we were talking about that are going on that are really make it a very different environment. And I think what's thrown a lot of really smart investors off who were early on calling for big inflation and then acting at the end of the cycle 12 years in as if we weren't gonna ever get it and then acted surprised when we got it then. So it's been a very unique environment. Other comments, questions? Pregnant pause. Well, I would encourage everyone, this, this debate will continue week by week and uh, we'll be in London, come join. That really was where Stephen Burke was recognized as someone we need to give yield the floor to. And thank you, Stephen, 166 weeks in a row. Thanks, Mark, it's been fun. Been great, great. Thanks, Stephen. With the group, so. And Walter, welcome. Uh, nice to have another global perspective into the group. Thank you very much, everyone. I appreciate it. And I look forward to learning more. And Mark, sorry, I can't make London. It's uh, looks like you're gonna have a great event over there. Yeah, it's getting better and better, except for except for you. But we'll maybe somehow I'll have to see if we can get you up early to join part of it. <laughs> Mark, is there an agenda for the July uh, um, Newport? Uh, you can always always count on a, the, the classic agenda. It'll be like London. There'll be an allocator session, and then we'll talk about allocation by uh, global region and in asset classes. We'll talk about um, effectively mer merging industries and. We'll, we'll talk about impact and optimizing impact and philanthropy. We might sp sprinkle in a zeitgeist. We didn't do that last year. Um, it was our first Newport. I don't know if we want to talk about the Newport zeitgeist or not. I'm of two minds, but those are going to be your, and then we'll do our, our round tables and then we'll, we'll have a uh, ample room. We've, we've widened the venue. So we'll have the ability to have uh access to right, wine and cocktails during those round tables at touch wood. The weather will be nice, touch wood. We'll play pickleball one of the mornings, the, the, the 10th or the 11th, touch wood. So yes, the zeitgeist marriage. Well, 
I mean, I, I guess it would be interesting to talk about, you know, where is Newport? It was a huge, you know, I, I know people from, from the military there. You've got people, all these old families, a lot of oil families are there. Um, so it's an interesting, obviously they got this, you know, maybe, maybe we will. We, we just never did it, done it before. I'm just looking, answering the, the, your, the chat. But Bob, it's, it's like what we do all the time. Um, okay. A little, little private paper. Given the group, I would say it tends to, this will be a little more venture oriented group coming, entrepreneurial. So it's an easy drive, as you know, from New York. Right. The date is, is July 10th. The 9th on the Sunday, we'll do something informal. The, the conference will be the 10th um, after lunch plus reception. And then uh, there's the other, the other conferences are ha have going on in parallel. So kill two birds with a stone. Yeah, we will overlap with Opal. It is what it is. Um, but we had a great event while we were overlapping with Opal last time. Yeah, where it's complimentary. They work together. You're really wearing a sweater. It's not warm here. Sorry. Okay. Check your weather out. It's rather warm here. It's a bit like Scotland today. No offense to Scotland. Right. Uh, Andrew, you get your hand up. Are you gonna you gonna be my driver in Newport, Andrew? You gonna pick me up and like you did in Florida? Uh, do I get a stipend? <laughs> no. I, if, if I'm there with you, for sure. It's, there's a liquid stipend. Got got it. Um. Stephen, quickly. Back to you, Stephen. You're back on the hook. Uh, if things escalate in, with the situation in Taiwan, how does that impact our economy on a macro level? Uh, you could go look at the YouTube videos on, on, on this, these discussions, Andrew. Yeah. You on Taiwan. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I, it depends on how it shakes out. Um, you know, what's, what's the timing, what's the willingness, you know, it's, uh, how aggressive or not it is and how fast it is, um, really depends if we get, we can't really afford to get dragged into another protracted war and the war in Ukraine doesn't look like it's going to have a necessarily a quick ending, um, already doesn't have one. Um, so I think it's too open-ended right now to know, but, um, I think you really have to see the shape that it takes to know how we would, what we're getting involved in and how we'd have to react. Um, it's actually too hard to project on that one. Although smarter people are. So the Rand, I'm sure is Rand group probably has their thing out on it. Um, I didn't check on uh, uh, the Stockholm uh, peace group. I didn't see what they have, but um, definitely, won't be good. <laughs> won't be good for anybody. I think though that's one of the things that it seems to be a little bit of a warming is uh, if the Chinese economy um, is struggling the way it appears to me to be, 
um, which I think is worse than the numbers are showing, then their willingness to uh, either partner or compete is going to be defined by that. And I'm kind of optimistic that they'll take a more uh, global approach to it's better to have the biggest markets in the world as customers than to have them as enemies. Well, um, remember, Stephen, the, uh, I think it was Rob Lee's view is the likelihood of war increases as you move, as you either the economy is doing really well or, or, or it's doing worse. Yeah. You know, I think it depends on why it's doing worse and how, um, you know, it's, uh, there are problems in that economy right now that, uh, might not be solved by Taiwan. <laughs> the issue. But, but as we know, people do things not for always economic. No, the, the, the driver there is stability right now. There, that, that has to be their primary focus, domestic stability. And that unemployment rate that we talked about the last couple of weeks is quite worrying. Uh, when you have 11 million students graduating from university every year and tell them to go work in a factory, doesn't fit the Chinese dream. It's not what you give up your freedoms for, put it that way. So I think that's their that's their big issue right now. Yeah, but, but they never really they didn't have the same dream. In fact, I, I'm when I'm reading, she's saying just go get over it. That's exactly what he's saying. That's exactly <laughs> what he said. Like, what what are you talking about? That is the Chinese dream. You help China. Well, it was his it was his life. So you know that's what he had. He was in the I guess taken to a a reprogramming camp or whatever as a kid. So he did eat the bitterness. I guess he wants everyone else to, but that's not what they've been selling. Put it that way. So what is our percentage of chip production uh, versus Taiwan's? I think Taiwan's 70% of the world. 70? I mean, the U.S. is like 10% of all semiconductors of manufacturing. But we'll... We'll pick that up pretty quick with the investments that are being made. Well, so we'll have to see. Won't be picked up that quickly, but mm -hmm. maybe it's part of the calculus. You know, it won't, it'll, it's going to take some years. Yeah, it also depends on what chips matter. Um, China is producing a lot of chips that don't matter right now. Taiwan is producing chips that matter. We can produce chips that matter, and so can parts of Europe. So we just have to, we just have to make sure we're our policies are supportive of what we need done.